Good morning. Today is November 14th, 2013. I'd like to welcome you to this week's edition of Understanding the Law. I'm your host, Peter Lamont, and I'm a business and personal law attorney and the principal of the law offices of Peter J. Lamont. The firm has offices in New Jersey, New York, Colorado, Puerto Rico, and affiliated offices throughout the country. Understanding the Law is a weekly radio broadcast where we discuss a variety of legal topics that affect our listeners. Please note that this broadcast does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship with any of our listeners. As always, we welcome calls from our listeners, and if you would like to discuss any of today's topics, or if you have a separate legal question, I encourage you to call into our switchboard, and that number is 347-855-8831. We'll try to get through as many calls as possible. Today, uh, the show is being sponsored by TriggerSmart, inventors of the world's leading child-proof smart gun technology. You can learn more about our sponsor, TriggerSmart, by visiting www.triggersmart.com. That's T-R-I-G-G-E-R-S-M-A-R-T.com. We have a lot of information that I want to get through today, um, but before we get into some of uh, this week's you know, relevant news stories. I want to talk about something that we have received a lot of calls about this week, and that is rights of a tenant in an apartment um, with respect specifically to heating. Obviously, fall is progressing very quickly, and before you know it, we're going to be into the dead of winter. And as it is, we've had, at least here on the East Coast, more uh, of a uh, wintry feel to this fall. Uh, temperatures dropping down at night, sometimes into the 30s or, or even upper 20s. And we've received a number of inquiries from individuals who are tenants in either uh, garden apartments or multi-unit complexes concerning their rights with respect to heating. Uh, in particular, one woman's call was, um, was, was quite interesting and, and rather compelling she was um, a senior citizen living in an apartment complex, and the uh, control for the uh, heating unit was actually in the adjacent tenant's unit. And so she had no ability to adjust the heat in her apartment unit. And her question was, what do I do? I've contacted the landlord, and I've told them numerous times that you know, what might be comfortable for you is not comfortable for me. I'm an older woman, and I need to have some heat. Uh, it's getting to the point where, you know, I'm feeling pain. I have arthritis, and this is, is just, you know, really impacting my life. What do I do? And she tried to do everything that, you know, normal non-lawyers would do. Contact the super, call them, uh, write a letter, send an email, send a text message, all with no results. And of course, in her case, the landlord was, was friendly and not uh, necessarily nasty to her about her complaints, but took no action. And so what do you do in a situation like that? What do you do if you have a landlord who is not so responsive or, or at least friendly about your complaints and also does nothing? Well, here's what you need to know. Your lease and everyone should have a lease. There are those you know, special circumstances where you may not have a lease, but obviously having a lease protects you just as much as it does the landlord. You need to look at your lease. 
there's typically a provision in the lease that uh, it, it starts off uh, with language that um, includes the tenant's right to uh, quiet enjoyment of the premises. And that's a, a legal term of art, but it can be applied to scenarios where your ability to live and function and utilize the rented premises, the apartment, has been impacted by the landlord's inability or refusal to provide you with a space that um, complies with the average normal standard of living. Obviously, heat is something that everyone needs. So that provision, based upon other provisions in the lease, gives you some legal legs to stand on with respect to approaching the owner or landlord or super, whoever it may be, in your apartment complex. Oftentimes, um, you can go directly to your local housing department um, and you can get some relief because just about every state has minimum temperature requirements for multi-dwelling units. So in other words, if you are so inclined to put a thermometer or look at the uh, thermometer on your, on your thermostat if it is accessible in your unit, and it drops below a certain temperature at night, this is something that if you cannot get any relief directly from the landlord, that you can go to your local housing board or to the state, and you can say, I've recorded temperatures below X degree numerous times. Here's a log of what I've done. Can you please come in and investigate? And they will, in fact, do that. And if they find that there are violations of the administrative code or your state's local or um, you know, state regulations, they will institute a fine against the landlord and they will require that he adjust it so that the temperature is comfortable. Oftentimes, landlords have ways of bypassing this sort of administrative um, you know, punishment or penalty and therefore you are obligated at some point to retain a lawyer and sue them. Uh, but oftentimes, a threatening letter from a lawyer would be enough to kind of kickstart your landlord to get going and, and help you. So point here is that you definitely have legal remedies and legal rights. No one, you know, regardless of the state that you live in, regardless of the town or um, you know, the, the, the level of income in your town, no one should be without heat this winter. And if you're paying rent to a landlord, they're obligated to provide you with a comfortable living environment. So don't just write them constantly with no results. Don't just, you know, hold your head and say, they're not answering me. You have rights. So take the next step. Go to the local municipal and state levels. Look on the internet for advice. And if you can't find what you need, contact a lawyer. You know, it doesn't need to be something where you're spending thousands, thousands and thousands of dollars on a lawyer. It could simply be a letter for problem resolved. So don't hesitate. Reach out in your state. Contact someone that has experience in landlord-tenant or real estate issues and, uh, and seek their help because it, it's really uh, tragic to hear of the people who, who die and they do die throughout the country in their apartment complex because there's no heat. So keep that in mind. Um, if you have additional questions, we're always willing to answer those questions. Uh, but 
don't think that you have no options. You absolutely do. All right. Now, we talked last week, um, and we were, we were lucky enough to have a guest on, uh, Robert McNamara, who talked about the incident at Garden State Plaza and uh, handgun regulations and smart gun technology. Now, in the aftermath of the Garden State Plaza incident, which uh, if, if you weren't uh, aware of or didn't tune in last week, it's one of, uh, well, actually, it's the largest mall in the state of New Jersey and one of the largest malls in the state. And um, a uh, young adult had entered the Garden State Plaza and shot a, um, a rifle into the air, into the ceiling walls and, and uh, allegedly some cameras, which obviously caused the mall to go into lockdown, some panic, and ultimately the shooter took his life. Um, but what we're seeing now is a great deal of state and federal resources being devoted to what the Homeland Security Department calls soft targets. Uh, a mall is considered a soft target. Uh, the law enforcement presence at malls is generally low or non-existent. You may have private security guards, but oftentimes they're not armed. Uh, they don't have the ability to carry a firearm if they so wanted to. So there's a lot of uh, focus now being, being placed upon mall security, especially as we are reaching the very busy holiday shopping season. And what the government is looking at is essentially placing security, you know, government security officials um, or their state equivalent and, and getting them involved with some of the coordination with security at the malls. So we have government officials who are actually reaching out to some of the larger retail outlets and advising them on how they think that we should improve security at the mall. And, of course, this involves communications with the Department of Homeland Security. Now, this raises a lot of interesting questions because there are those people who believe that we should have far more security at malls and that that security should come from the top down from government officials, that there should be um, more government involvement concerning the safety of soft targets like malls. And on the other hand, there are those people that believe that more government involvement in our day-to-day -day lives is a detriment. We, you know, we don't want the government controlling, whether it's federal or state, controlling our daily activities. But then that, that begs the question, well, what do we do as citizens who want to go and, and shop at a mall? How do we know that we are safe? And, and what do we do about it? How do we make a balance? And you know, I want to read some comments that we received after last week's you know, broadcast. And I'd love to hear from some of the listeners to see exactly what it is that uh, that they believe. Now, one of one of the comments is very interesting, and it I think represents a lot of the sentiment in uh, those pro-gun states and individuals. And this comment was uh, provided after our last broadcast. And uh, here, here's what the um, the individual commented: uh, "You notice." 
that all these shootings have something in common. It happens in states or places. Normal citizens are not allowed to carry firearms. All the shooters use stolen firearms, so let's put two and two together. More gun control doesn't help this. More armed citizens do. Um, the individual continues and says, Switzerland is the most armed country in the world at 93% of the population uh, who carry firearms, and they have nearly zero gun deaths. Odd, huh? So that's one of the most interesting comments. And, you know, that now continues the debate of, is gun control the answer? And last week when we, we talked to Robert, and he was explaining how his smart gun technology can help reduce uh, the incidence of accidental shootings. I think that that's a fair statement. I, I agree with that statement. If you are a gun owner and you are, are negligent, because that's really what it comes down to, and you leave your weapon in an area where your children can access it, um, having smart gun technology, which is a system where the user of the, of the weapon needs to wear a bracelet that has a transmitter that transmits a wireless signal to the gun, which unlocks it, and without on your wrist, you can't access the gun, uh, that, in theory, would save lives from accidental shootings. But I don't think that in this mall discussion, we're really talking about accidental shootings. We're talking about people who obtain firearms illegally. Now, in the case of um, the Garden State Mall shooting, we know that the gunman had taken his brother's rifle, which was a legally registered firearm. So if you want to apply the issue of smart gun technology to the Garden State Mall incident, it is conceivable that having the smart gun technology on the rifle may or may not have prevented the gunman from discharging the firearm at the mall. That assumes, of course, that his brother would have known enough to secure the transmitter, the bracelet, in a location that was inaccessible to anyone but himself. We talked last week with Robert about the fact that regardless of what safety devices are implemented, it really still comes down to the gun owner's obligation to safeguard what is undoubtedly a, a dangerous weapon. So you can have all of the technology, but if you have a gun owner who is negligent and fails to secure their firearm, regardless of the technology in place, you're not going to be able to really prevent something like this from happening. Now, with respect to something like uh, Sandy Hook, which is is coming up on its uh, year anniversary, and there's some issues that I want to talk about with respect to that coming up in the broadcast. Again, it was a legally obtained and uh, you know properly owned and registered firearm that was taken, and which was the uh, obvious instrument of of the massacre. And again. You can see the tie-in with the smart gun technology. 
if it is utilized properly. But getting back to the comment that the individual made during our, or after our last broadcast about gun control, um, clearly they're pro-firearms, and their position is, or their opinion is, that the states that have fewer restrictions on gun control have the least amount of, of gun-related crime. I'd like to know if, if you agree with that. Uh, I mean, he gives statistics about Switzerland and um, the, the gun-related incidents arising out of Switzerland. And while I can't confirm his 93% um, comment concerning uh, incidents involving guns, I, I can confirm, based upon independent research, that Switzerland does have a very, very high safety rating, and they do have relaxed restrictions on guns. So applying his thought process, if we ease restrictions on, on gun control, does it provide more or less protection? The idea of armed citizens, does that increase risk or, or does it somehow curtail it? And I think that this is, is something that is going to be heavily debated, and I don't know that we're ever going to reach resolution of it. Now, this ties into something that happened this week with respect to the parents of the victims of the Sandy Hook massacre in, uh, in, in Connecticut last year. And, you know, it's interesting because these, uh, these parents, who obviously have suffered devastating losses. I mean, I can't even imagine as a parent uh, having to deal with something like that. It, it's, it's just absolutely unimaginable. Uh, but these individuals had hoped to, and I guess, institute change, you could say, by petitioning the federal government and requesting that stricter background checks be implemented in connection with the purchase of firearms. And Recently, um, the government voted down that uh, proposed legislation, and they have refused to enact the uh, stricter background checks that the parents of Sandy Hook were hoping to have passed. Now, what's gone on this week is that the Sandy Hook group of parents are essentially recruiting other parents and, and parents groups throughout the, the country, and they are hoping that these parents can all come together and sort of come up with a solution outside of the federal government. Um, you know, one of the, uh, the parents who had lost uh, a first grade child, uh, her name was Nicole Hockley, she's quoted as saying, I think the lesson we've learned uh, and the lesson that we've heard from all the people and other parents that we've talked to around the country is that we don't want to wait for D.C. What she's referring to is the fact that they don't feel as, as victims that we have the time to wait for this to be discussed as a committee, for this to go through the normal process of, which obviously everyone in the country knows, it can be approved as quickly or as slowly, if it's ever approved, as um, as possible. And there are a lot of 
groups that lobby against stricter gun controls. The NRA, the National Rifle Association, is obviously one of them, and they are a very influential group with respect to politics and legislature. So um, Nicole's comment concerning what's gone on with the, uh, you know, with Washington is we can't wait. We've got to take matters into our own hands. And while what they're suggesting obviously doesn't seem like it's a lynch mob or um, some other sort of vigilante behavior, what they are seeking to do is try to gather parents up to talk about solutions to gun control issues. But, but this is a very, very big and overwhelming topic. It involves so many areas of law. It involves, you know, constitutional rights. It involves political issues, lobbying, and money, which obviously always plays into the implementation and passing of certain laws and bills. And it's uh, maybe a cynical look at things, but it's reality. So what they're hoping to do, this Sandy Hook group, is recruit around 500,000 parents between now and the anniversary of the shooting. And, um, you know, it's interesting to see what sort of support they'll be able to, uh, to gather. Um, certainly, it's a good idea, uh, at the very least, to open up a forum where parents across the country can, can discuss these, uh, these issues and options. Now, we do know that certain states have implemented their own gun control laws that uh, oftentimes exceed those of the federal government. In particular, Connecticut, uh, after the Newton massacre, passed very tough gun laws uh, and, and it really has eclipsed the, uh, the federal background check requirements. Um, but that falls on the individuals and, and look at what people are petitioning for, look at the comments, look at um, the letters coming in to state senators and legislators and make a decision whether or not this sort of, of, of law is appropriate for their state. So, it's, a, it's an interesting crusade. Clearly, uh, these parents have suffered an unimaginable loss, and I think that many of these parents have now dedicated themselves to gun control and, and increased laws. It still falls back on the general question of, will it prevent tragedy? Um, I personally think, having spoken to a number of, of um, people in, in legislature, um, state senators, and, and hearing the opinions of uh, people affiliated with the NRA and then the uh, um, anti-gun activists, I think that you're typically going to be able to prevent some shootings, uh, especially ones where you know, it's, it's um, a family member, somebody within the household who takes a, a lawfully registered gun. Um, you know, in, in the cases that, that I'm thinking of, Sandy Hook, you know, perhaps stricter gun rules uh, with respect to background checks would have prevented this because uh, they would have perhaps caught the 
issue of the uh, of the shooter who obviously had some some mental issues that were documented and perhaps his mother would not have been able to obtain a permit uh, it, it's very theoretical um, whether or not it would it would stop gun violence where weapons are obtained illegally that's another story altogether we talked last week about a New Jersey appellate division case where the, um, the homeowner who had uh, had his son you know, in, his, in his 20s, who was a convicted felon living with him, was denied a permit for a firearm, even though his background was completely clear. Um, the courts essentially ruled that no individual who has a felony conviction should be permitted to reside in a, uh, in a place where there is a firearm. So essentially, the applicant, the father, was denied his his you know right, as some may say, to the firearm based upon the fact that his son, a felon, was living with him, uh, and he claimed that his civil rights were violated. But we talked last week about. The fact that this really isn't a civil rights violation. If the son didn't live with the father, I would presume that he would have been given permission to, to have the gun. So that's interesting. Now, following the same theme here, this is also an interesting development this week. Um, obviously, first responders to the Sandy Hook massacre of the Newton police officers. And um, there's a group, and one officer in particular, uh, Thomas Bean, who was one of the first police officers to respond, or respond to the scene, who is, um, is looking at potentially losing his job because of post-traumatic and disability requirements. And this is a very interesting story, and we received some comments about this uh, after we had made some social media posts this week. Uh, arrives on, on the scene, and he looks at his carnage, his devastation. First graders having been gunned down. And regardless of his training and regardless of what he's seen in his, in his days as a police officer, without a doubt, there is nothing that could prepare anyone for that sort of, uh, of dramatic um, observation. I mean, that's just beyond what I think people in the military service or people in typical law enforcement are really mentally prepared to see, to see a, a group of, of, of slaughtered children. It's, it's a terrible thing. And while he was there and performed his job, since then, he has, has been diagnosed professionally, not just self-diagnosed, with post-traumatic stress disorder. And post-traumatic stress dis disorder, or PTSD, is a real thing. It's real, so says the medical community. It's real, so says the legal community. And for those people who have never encountered a situation where, you know, you experience PTSD, believe me, it's 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 devastating and life-changing. Um, I speak from experience concerning post-traumatic stress disorder because when, when my wife and I had our, our second child and he was diagnosed with uh, a heart condition and nearly died, it was very, very um, 
harrowing the the efforts that that went into uh, saving him. Um, it, it's something that my wife experienced, and and I to a certain extent as well. But having seen it, having lived through it, I understand it, and also having a lot of um, a lot of friends who are coming back from the military, military service, and hearing their stories and listening to them talk about the inability to sleep and, and the visions that they see. It's a real thing. Uh, so getting back to, um, to Officer Bean, he is experiencing the same sort of things that someone who comes back from heavy combat is experiencing. The inability to sleep, uh, having... Uh, visions or, or nightmares and seeing the images that he saw when he arrived on the scene. And he was um, obviously being treated for the post-traumatic stress disorder, and he was receiving disability through the police department. Um, at least 14 other police officers have also missed work because of the post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, and, uh, you know, Bean, of all of them, is the only one that's been able to, um, well, I guess he's the only one that really has not returned to work. Um, the others have been able to, to more or less, I guess, cope, you could say. That doesn't mean that they are still not experiencing the uh, disorder. But, but Mr. Bean, or Officer Bean in particular, is having a very difficult time. Now, that's not anything... About him, I mean, that, that, there's nothing you can you could really say like, uh, oh, you know, he's trying to milk this. The the man is experiencing significant issues in the aftermath of the shooting, and uh, you know, there's this this saying in the law, um, not particularly on point, but the idea you'll see is a tie-in. Um, plaintiffs' attorneys uh, deal with this thing called the eggshell theory, the eggshell uh, skull plaintiff theory. And essentially what it means is that if you have a plaintiff who is injured and um, the injury or that, that individual had a, you know, in the, in the case of the, uh, of the terminology, a softer skull than the average person and he is bumped and falls and cracks his head open and the average person wouldn't have sustained such severe, uh, severe brain damage as the individual with the um, eggshell skull, should you say that that individual is not entitled to recover because the average person wouldn't have that physical disability or limitation? And, and clearly, no. In, in the plaintiff's world, you take your plaintiff as you find him. If it's a plaintiff with quote-unquote eggshell skull, well, that's what the defendant has to deal with. So in this case, the fact that Officer Bean has not returned to active duty doesn't mean anything other than he is having a hard time dealing with the situation. And then should you penalize him because others have returned to work? And if you follow my tie-in with the eggshell uh, skull, theory, I would say no. You have to take Officer Bean as you find him. Well, what, what's interesting here is that the union contract that covers the police officers say uh, or says that the officers are entitled to long-term disability payments until they reach retirement eligibility, which uh, for, for Newton police officers is 25 years of service, 
and Officer Bean uh, has approximately 12 years to go before he can reach that point. And if you're not retirement age, then the town's long-term disability insurance would cover Officer Bean for only two years of payments. After that, the town's insurance expires and the taxpayers are responsible for paying his salary until he retires. And clearly, that would cost hundreds of thousands of dollars to do. Um, So this is a very interesting scenario because uh, clearly, taxpayers are not necessarily going to want to incur additional expenses simply to allow Officer Bean to um, continue to collect. But at the same time, Here's a public servant who was, you know, really injured, for lack of a better term. You could call it something else, but that's what he was, psychologically injured or traumatized. So is it fair that somebody who dedicates their life to this profession, serves the public, should not have some sort of insurance benefit in place? And I I have no opinion on this. I, I leave discussion, um, we've received a number of comments on this, and some of them are quite harsh, and others, uh, especially from those who are or were, say uh, essentially that public servants, police officers, paid firefighters, uh, municipal employees, while you know, everyone thinks that they've got it made in the shade and that they've got a great pension and insurance, that it's not all that it's cracked up to be. But when you engage others who are outside of the public service industry, uh, they typically have the um, preconceived notion that if you're employed by state government, you're a police officer or you're a fireman, You've got it set. You know, you've got it made. You've got insurance for life. You've got a pension. You can retire at a very young age while everyone else outside the public sector are working, you know, well into their 60s. Um, and, and they get this, this feeling of, well, too bad. It's, it's unfair, but nobody would care about me. So, you know, we've got this, this back and forth debate, and I don't think it's a simple answer, but it certainly is something that, Uh, I would like to hear your comments on. All right, now let's switch gears a bit. I want to go into um, a issue that was was brought to to light this week concerning New Jersey and a uh, senator's um, crusade to enact laws against texting while you are stopped at a traffic light. Now, this is interesting because many of the people that I've spoken to about uh, cell phone laws and and texting laws are under the impression that it is unlawful, particularly in New Jersey, it is unlawful to without hands-free operation while you're operating a vehicle. And And that's true. If you look at the statute, and you look at the law, it, it says the following. The use of a wireless telephone or electronic communications device by an operator of a moving motor vehicle 
shall be unlawful except when the telephone is a hands-free wireless telephone or electronic communication device. And then it continues on uh, where there would be circumstances where you would be lawfully entitled to use it, but they all deal with emergency scenarios. But here's the key. The law right now in New Jersey is that it must be a moving motor vehicle. And if you apply the strict interpretation of the statute, when you are stopped at a traffic light or a stop sign, primarily a traffic light, um, because there's obviously a greater delay in time of, of you know, your vehicle being stopped rather than at a stop sign. But while you're stopped, your vehicle is theoretically not moving. You may be operating the vehicle, but that's not what the statute says. It says an operator of a moving vehicle. So what we have now is uh, Senator Richard Cody looking to enact legislation that operators who are texting at traffic lights. Now, he believes, as do, uh, do many across the country, that you know, driving while distracted is a major problem. But others are going to argue, but I'm not driving. I'm, I'm not moving the vehicle. I'm stopped. So we've reached out for some uh, comments. And one comment uh, or, or statement that, that's rather interesting um, deals with the idea of being distracted while you stopped at a red light and focusing on, on what you're texting, not paying attention to the traffic signals, um, having others behind you start to move while you're not moving. Is there possibility for liability there? And, um, and the, the few comments that we have received on this, they all are against enacting a law that would prohibit someone stopped at a red light from texting. Um, you know, it, this is a, it's a hard call because as an attorney, um, I, I would certainly argue that after the light has changed, that the individual was distracted, that uh, it was, um, he, was, he or she was distracted because of the, the texting and thinking about what they were going to text and trying to finish their statement and, um, you know, that sort of thing. And all those arguments can be made. But then there are others who are going to say, well, what's not a distraction when operating a motor vehicle? Is looking out the window considered a distraction? Is listening to the radio or changing or looking at a GPS? Are they distractions? So it's an interesting debate. Um, I, I think that this law will ultimately pass um, because of the massive amount of nationwide effort put in by the National Traffic uh, Highway Safety Board and others uh, against texting. So I, I think that it will ultimately pass. Whether or not you think it's a good idea is really up to you. But you have to be aware of the fact that as this passes or what I believe will pass in New Jersey, um, those states that don't already have laws on the book concerning texting while just operating a vehicle, not necessarily a moving vehicle, I, I would suspect that this will spread. Uh, it's really no different than the spreading of consumer protection statutes throughout the country. 
Um, we've talked before about New Jersey's consumer protection statute and how it is, is so pro-consumer and that over the past 10 years, those strict pro-consumer laws have seeped out over New Jersey's border. State government across the country, and now we find a lot of states having very similar consumer protection laws. So interesting to see how that will play out. Um, next, I want to talk about a fired Rutgers bus driver. Now, this, this is a very interesting story as well. Um, there is a bus driver in, in Rutgers. He's driving a, uh, a campus bus. His name is Stan McNeil. He happens to be a minister, uh, and he is a bus driver. And so he's essentially tasked with um, moving students throughout the campus and a uh, very nice gentleman. And when he sees people get on the bus, he engages them in conversation. Now, in particular, uh, he oftentimes sees a student who is either physically disabled or uh, visibly upset or you know, something where he can look at them and say, oh, you know, there, there's an issue going on here. And he oftentimes will say things like, oh, it'll get better. You know, I'm going to pray for you. Uh, one instance that, that recently occurred, uh, there was a student who boarded the bus and she was in a wheelchair. And he looked at her and he said to her, you know, it's it's going to be okay. I'm going to keep you in my prayers. And then he secured her into the bus. Now, this is relevant, and you'll see how this plays out later, but the requirement is that there are four straps on the bus that are um, there for the purpose of securing the wheelchair into the, uh, the body of the bus. And the first time that the student was, uh, was boarding the bus, Stanley, secure all four straps or tethers and then made the comment about uh, praying for her. And, and he continued to do this throughout the course of his employment at Rutgers as a bus driver and would continue to say, uh, I'll pray for you or oftentimes recite small sections from uh, the Bible. And it was all aimed at uh, positivity. You know, he, he wasn't talking to students about their activities and saying, you know, that's, that, that violates the Ten Commandments, you're going to hell. It, it wasn't that sort of, of, of thing. It was very positive energy. I'll pray for you. I'll keep you in my prayers. How many times have, have you and I heard or, or told the story to somebody uh, who is uh, a person of, of, of faith, be it a, uh, an officiant, a priest, or a rabbi, or... Um, another religious um, administrator, or just your average person. And they say, oh, I'll, I'll pray for you. I'll keep you in, in, in my prayers. Well, that's what Stanley did. Funded institution, and we all know about the separation of church and state, had approached him and said to him, this has to stop. You cannot talk about religion while you're operating a Rutgers bus. But they were hard-pressed to do anything. 
Now, the individual who was in the wheelchair, who Stanley had originally spoken to, boards the bus a second time. And again, Stanley makes a comment to her. She did not object. She did not, um, as far as we know, report anything to Rutgers and say that she was offended and wished that this would, would stop. But what happened is that he failed to secure all four straps. He only secured two of the four, which he subsequently admitted. Uh, he was brought up on, on administrative charges through the university, and ultimately they have fired him. They fired him on the grounds that he failed to secure all four straps. So, you know, from, from black letter law, they were entitled to fire him. But he believes that it had really very little to do with the securing of the straps, especially since there was no incident that occurred with respect to no accident. She didn't get injured. Everything was fine. He failed to secure the straps. So you can look at this, you know, either way. You can say, well, he didn't follow protocol and therefore he should be fired. Or you can uh, agree with, with his position, which is they wanted me out before this incident and I gave them the rope with which to hang me. I gave them that, that opportunity because I, you know, unfortunately failed to secure all four straps. Now, we've asked for comments on this. We received a number of, of comments that um, really span a wild uh, spectrum here. I want to read some. Um, you know, some people are, are, are saying, my facts are straight, as I realize why he was fired and understand it's a fireable offense. Um, failure to properly secure a wheelchair, he should be fired. And, and that's a lot of... Um, you know, of, of the opinion. Uh, but we have others who, let me pull this quote uh, that, that we received. Um, it says here, Stanley, enough with prayer. We don't want to hear it. We don't care. Go away. You should have been fired a long time ago. Now, now that unfortunately is, is the, general consent that, um, that we've received. Many people believe that he should have been fired, but most um, sentiment is stop praying. And I'd like to know what, what you think about that. Um, you know, here's another one that we received. We have enough prayers, and we've had enough of his prayers and beliefs. Cut this out. Public transportation is for driving, not for praying. He was not hired for it. Move over. Go away. So I think that many people are against the idea of him offering his prayers or uh, speaking about his religious beliefs in any way. And you know, this, is, this is a centuries-old debate concerning uh, the separation of church and state. Should he have been fired for the failure to properly secure the wheel? Possibly. Uh, he violated the law. We're going to look at the black letter. Yes, then he should have been fired. Um, should he have received a warning first? That's up for debate. Uh, but the issue over 
his comments, where does his freedom of speech and what do we do about this idea of the curtailment of your freedom of expression because you are working for a or state institution? Now, proponents of prayer, proponents of religion are going to say that this is wildly unacceptable and unfair. He has First Amendment rights and should be able to espouse his beliefs and make statements so long as he is not hurting anyone. And clearly, he was not hurting anyone. Right? I mean, it's arguable, but you could say, I don't believe, and therefore he was offending me. But arguably, he was not hurting anyone. His comments were positive. Um, but anti-prayer groups are going to say there's simply no place for this in today's society. If you want to have your beliefs, you are free to have them. If you want to go to church or synagogue and express those beliefs with like-minded individuals, go ahead. Your freedom of speech is protected. Go and engage in that sort of activity. But I don't believe, and therefore... I don't want to be force-fed your beliefs, nor do I even want to be exposed to it. So, you know, we'll see what happens. I would imagine that a lawsuit is in the works, and uh, we'll see what happens with, uh, with poor Stanley. Uh, next thing I want to talk about as we are approaching the holiday season, and for all of those of you... And I have to admit, to an extent, I fall into that category, who have no time and cannot really put maximum effort into shopping, and you opt for the gift card, of course, with the fancy box, so it looks like you did put some thought into it. Uh, I want to talk about something that the Third Circuit Court of Appeals has uh, recently uh, been dealing with. The one-year limit on redeeming a gift certificate or gift card. So, if the lucky recipient of a gift card, or if you give them out, you'll oftentimes realize that on the back of the card or on the cardboard um, or, or, or packaging that holds the card, there is very, very little language um, or wording that says void after 365 days, uh, valid for a year. Um, there's also certain cards that charge a fee after the expiration of a year. Uh, and, and, you know, you haven't used your, your gift certificate to Red Lobster, um, you know, and, and then a year and a month after you've received it, you go find out that there's only 60 because they've assessed fees. So, this is interesting because what's going on is that there's a case, uh, Shelton versus Restaurant.com. Restaurant.com is a, uh, a very popular website, and you can purchase gift cards through there. But they have a one-year time limit on their gift cards. And so in this case, Shelton versus Restaurant.com, um, a lawsuit was filed and it alleged that the New Jersey Consumer Fraud Act, along with some other laws, was violated by this one-year restriction. Now, New Jersey also has specific gift card laws, as do other states. 
And what we've seen over the few past few years is that essentially we're trying to move away from permitting these companies from charging a service fee after a particular amount of time. Therefore, many states have made it unlawful to impose a fee after a particular amount of time because obviously, you know, you paid for, you are the recipient of a $100 gift card, you should be entitled to that $100. It would be unfair to start taking money away. But this lawsuit, this case, is interesting because can we invalidate an expiration date on a gift card? And and this is actually... Um, something that's, that's going to play out because uh, this, this decision by the Third Circuit Court of Appeals allows Restaurant.com to be sued over the coupon's time limits. So we will see how it plays out. But I suspect, having engaged in consumer protection litigation myself um, and on a firm-wide basis, I, I suspect that, that this lawsuit will probably be successful. Um, certainly as the recipient of a gift card, um, you know, maybe you don't feel like going to Red Lobster until a year after you get the card. Is it fair that somebody has paid $100 and, you know, now you want to use it and you can't because it expired? Is that fair? You know, it's not like it was a coupon where you really did nothing except clip the coupon and, and now it's got an expiration date. Now, I can accept that, but when somebody goes out and they, they pay a set amount of money for a gift card and you believe that you're entitled to utilize that gift, shouldn't you be going to say, this uh, coupon's no good, this, this gift card is no good? So keep that in mind uh, and, and look at the gift cards that you either get or give and look for that limitation on the back of the card. And uh, until this issue is fully fleshed out, I would suggest that uh, you make use of your gift cards in a very swift fashion. Um, and, and I'm only you know, partially joking, but uh, you do have to be aware of expiration dates. And if you believe that um, a term or condition on a gift card, because it's just way too difficult to track the number of companies putting out gift cards, whether they're, they're Visa or MasterCard gift cards or store-specific cards, um, you might look at something and, and see that the terms and conditions seem to be unfair. If you have a question about it, I suggest to you that you do contact an attorney and you ask them. Oftentimes, this sort of litigation is uh, taken in a class action context or through the Consumer Fraud Act and therefore attorneys will generally not charge you for pursuing such a claim. It, it operates under a contingency basis or um, in particular with respect to the New Jersey Consumer Fraud Act and other states uh, equivalent acts, there are provisions for the repayment of your attorney's fees by the other side, by the losing party. So uh, that's something to uh, to think about this holiday season. Um, now, one thing I want to talk about, which we're going to have to uh, get into next week, but I want to at least address the issue and then call for some comments on it. Um, in Ohio, a man whose wife died in a car accident earlier this year is now suing the hospital where she worked as a nurse 
and alleging that she was essentially worked to death. Um, so what's going on here is that uh, Beth Jasper was a nurse in Ohio. She worked at the Jewish hospital in Cincinnati, uh, which her husband says is regularly understaffed, and she was forced to work uh, additional shifts and overtime. And on the way home one night from an extended shift, she was involved in a car accident and, and died. And so now he is suing the hospital. This is a very interesting case. Um, it essentially is a negligent case more than it is any sort of labor law case or violation. So in a negligence case, you're going to have to be able to prove the four elements of negligence. You know, A, that the hospital owed a duty to the nurse and to their employees. B, that they breached the duty. Uh, see that there were damages and that the damages were proximately caused by the breach of duty. Now, in that discussion of negligence is always the idea of foreseeability. Is it reasonably foreseeable that such an accident could occur based upon the extended shifts? So that's certainly interesting, and uh, we're going to follow on this. I would like to get your comments concerning this. You can email me at... P. Lamont, L-A-M-O-N-T, at PeterLamontESQ.com, uh, or you could post to our Facebook page or other social media sites. Uh, I'd like to hear what you have to say about this, and then next week we will follow up and discuss this and uh, you know the events that have transpired. The other thing I want to remind you of is our annual coat drive. We have partnered again this year with Jersey Cares, and we are taking coat donations now through February. The coats will be distributed directly to needy men, women, and children throughout the state of New Jersey. Uh, it really is a worthwhile and wonderful cause because Northeast winters can be cold, and to think of a family or individual who does not have a coat is obviously very, very upsetting, and so we want to do our best to try to uh, provide coats to those in need. So please... Um, we're calling for your donations. Information is available at our website and on our Facebook page. Uh, you can take all of your donations directly to our New Jersey office, and you will receive other um, items as well as a, uh, a tax uh, receipt for your donation. Um, that's about all the time we have for today, so I'd like to thank you for joining me. We'll be back next week with more legal and business news. If you have any questions or you want to discuss a legal issue with us, please feel free to give us a call. Our office number is 973-949-3770, or you can email us, and I've provided that email before, plamont at peterlamontesq.com. Until next time, I would like to remind you that there is power in understanding the law. I'd like to thank you again for joining me today. 